Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, and the ti- uh, what I titled this one is The Day or Days of the Lord. With the question mark, the day or days of the Lord. We hear a lot of talk about the day of the Lord. We're waiting for the day of the Lord. We believe the day of the Lord is something that is in the future. But in the Bible too, we see a lot of preaching about the day of the Lord as if it was something that was going to come during that time. And what many will say is, well, you know, there was a bunch of days of the Lord. And, and I, I, I agree. I, I tend to agree with what they're saying. But I do think there's a way we can kind of be consistent and fully understand that term, day of the Lord. And it will help us uh, know what to apply to the future and what not to. Because some people read these passages and then everything in that book now just immediately goes to our future. And that doesn't make sense with everything that we're going to see in there. So hopefully... Uh, as we go through this, you'll be able to kind of uh, understand the distinction and you'll understand exactly what the prophet is doing. So we'll start out in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hizkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And it's always good whenever you look at the, those prophets, the major and the minor prophets, to pay attention who the king was during that time, because that will immediately tell you, uh, if, if you've done the study on it, you know what was going on during that time, what the state of Israel was. Um, is this something dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel? And so when he's talking about Josiah here, it's because this is about what was uh, going to take place in Judah with Jerusalem during the reign of Josiah, who was... Um, the, you know, a very good king after a really ba- that came after a really bad king. He was a king who understood, who ended up understanding that Israel had violated God's law greatly. We have the famous story where they went and searched through the house of God and they found the book and they read it to Josiah and Josiah ran his clothes because he realized we are in trouble because we have transgressed God. And there was a revival during his day. And Josiah was a good king. He, was, uh, he, started be, uh, he became king at only eight years old. It says in 2 Kings 22, 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And so we know too, if we pay attention to the chronology in the, that's in the Bible, that when this prophecy would have taken place this is roughly only 20 years before the babylonian captivity so zephaniah he would be contemporary with prophets like jeremiah jeremiah is someone we're all familiar with but the individual zephaniah we don't really know much about him he is he's not mentioned anywhere else in the bible there are other zephaniahs there's a zephaniah who was a priest who also lived during the time of josiah but if you look at who his father was it's clear that these weren't the same Zephaniah. So the one that you read about in, in Jeremiah, uh, it's not the same guy, even though this Zephaniah was alive during his time. And so it would have been roughly in 18, it was 18 years into Josiah's reign where they find the book of the law and he understands the trouble that it's in. And so I can only assume that during that time of reflection, when he comes to the realization that they're in trouble, it was probably during this time when God would have sent prophets like Zephaniah to him uh, to uh, give him some uh, revelation from God. And so, what ended up happening to Josiah? This is an important thing to understand too, 
Because, again, God didn't bring the trouble in his day because Josiah was a good king. But if you read the uh, chronology that's in Matthew, you have Josiah and he begat Jeconias and his brethren. And it was during that time when all the stuff really went down with Babylon and they got taken captive. And so this was a very crucial time when he was, was king. The northern kingdom's already been taken over. Israel's scattered all over. And Judah is surrounded with an army that they can't possibly defeat. And they are now realizing that judgment is coming upon them. But in 2 Kings 23-25, it says, And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. It's talking about Josiah. He did have a love for the God and his word, and he did the very best he could. But it says, notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith, he was angry, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. So, again, God did not bring judgment down on Judah during his reign, but Josiah, as much as he loved the Lord, it was not enough to get God to change his mind about what was coming on Jerusalem. And it says, And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, of the house which I said my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And pay attention to this. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him, and he slew him at Megiddo, which he had seen him, and his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulcher, and all the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. So I want you to notice this. This is just kind of a side thing that a lot of people get mixed up on. But right here, the Bible briefly mentions how Josiah died. It was by Pharaoh Necho, who if you go to Israel today, to the famous Armageddon location, the Megiddo Valley, they'll take you up on Tel Megiddo, and they'll tell you, according to the history, that Pharaoh Necho, the Egyptians built things there at one time. They will tell you that there in that valley is where Josiah fought that battle and where he died. And in that battle, uh, after that battle, they took Josiah and there was a great mourning for him in Jerusalem because he was a good king and, and they loved him. And then, and we're in Zechariah 12, okay? And because people have got this idea that the Revelation 19 battle is in Megiddo, which is just, it's not biblical. But one of the reasons they get mixed up on that is in Zechariah 12.10 that they try to make a Armageddon passage instead of a rapture passage. It says, And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So they'll associate that with Revelation, behold, he comes with the clouds, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. But John said that this prophecy was fulfilled 
when they looked on him whom they pierced at the cross. That's what John said. And it said, but they want to put this at Armageddon because they need to be at Armageddon. So notice it says, in that day, there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddon. And so there's, there's the Megiddon, there's the Armageddon reference. So therefore, this is about the battle of Armageddon. No, it's saying that when they look on him whom they pierced, there's going to be a great mourning, like the mourning they had when, at the death of Josiah in Megiddo. So they're, they, they don't understand that event. And so they're in their desperation to put this, you know, this event in, uh, you know, at Armageddon or at Revelation 19. They just kind of mess everything up. And he said, well, when was there that great mourning, you know, at the crucifixion? Well, there were some who were mourning greatly. You had Mary that was there. You had John that was there. You had other women that were there. Now, did Jerusalem have a great mourning like they should have when they were piercing him? No, they didn't. Uh, no, they didn't at all. But did Jesus not pour out grace and supplication that day? Suppli- you know, supplication. He's literally praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, the, he's committing the, the very act of you know, grace and he's doing the work of salvation that day. And just because Israel missed out on it and they were disobedient and were cheering on the Romans as they're crucifying him, doesn't mean God didn't keep his word in Zechariah 12. So what, you know, what people are doing, they're just kind of forcing this into something that happens at Armageddon and it's just, it doesn't make any sense. So uh, I, I say all that to just kind of now get into uh, chapter one. And just notice this prophecy is pretty much all doom and gloom. And notice it says verse 2, And I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from his place in the name of the Chimerims with the priests. And... You know, what is a, a chimerim? And if you look it up, it's basically an idolatrous priest is what it is. And so it says, and he, uh, talking about Josiah, uh, in, in 2 Kings 23.5, it says, and he uh, put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the hosts of heaven. And remember that verse too for people who say there's no such thing as planets. All right, I don't know what to tell you about that, but right there the Bible talks about planets. But anyway, Zephaniah 1.5, And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm, and them that turn back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. And Malcolm or Milcom is another way it's spelled in the Bible. It was a god of the Ammonites. He's mentioned three times in the Bible and he's referred to as an abomination. He's the abomination of the Ammonites. It says in 2 Kings 23:13, in the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. 
So basically what we're seeing in these verses is God is just showing why he's going to judge Jerusalem, why you all are going to be destroyed. I'm going to destroy the people. I'm going to destroy the animals. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm destroying you all. You know why? Because of the gods that they had, because of these idolatrous priests, because of these things you have. And this is probably one of the reasons too, we see Josiah removing the Chimarims or the idolatrous priests, because he's trying to get, you know, uh, Jerusalem right with God. And even though he did a lot of good things and God was pleased with the things he did, you know what? They had him there too long. It was too little, too late. And, you know, even in our country, if our country was to have some kind of revival and ban abortion, if our country was to have some kind of revival and we were to uh, make, you know, perversion and homosexuality illegal, I just still don't think we would be without judgment. It would help. For sure it would help. It might delay the judgment. But there is no way that this country is going to get away with all the bloodshed and with all the perversion. And I, I think the dumbest thing we could do is just like, well, since we're not getting out of it, might as well continue it. No, it'll just be worse and it'll come sooner. So, you know, but, but either way, um, I, just, I just don't think there's any way our country is getting out of the judgment that it has racked up. It is just my prayer that it's all being saved for the day of the Lord. But I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. God's good either way. So verse 7 says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. And man, listen to that verse there too. I mean, that sounds kind of like that wedding supper. You know, it kind of sounds like some things we see in the New Testament. And here in Zephaniah's day, here, you know, Four, like four or five hundred years, almost five hundred years, over five hundred years, before Jesus even comes, he's saying the day of the Lord is at hand. I mean, that kind of sounds like it's about to come, doesn't it? And let me tell you, the day of the Lord was at hand. And the day of the Lord that Zephaniah is prophesying about did come. Now, can we make any application to the day of the Lord we're looking for? Absolutely. And I'm going to explain how I think we're supposed to do that. But I want you to notice something because without a doubt, he is pronouncing judgment in this book that is going to come in that day, in their lifetime. But notice it's calling it the day of the Lord. And so something we all need to get a hold of when we're looking at Bible prophecy is the understanding. I believe there has always been, you know, well, first off, there is such a thing as dual fulfillment. I have no, I think that's provable. But there's also such a thing, too, as partial fulfillment. And what we need to get a hold of in prophecy is that there is a big, major day of judgment that's coming. There is a day of the Lord coming, a day of judgment, that I think we can say has been prophesied at least back to the time of Enoch, when Jude records Enoch saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all them that are ungodly. You're all familiar with that verse in Jude. Enoch. Why was Enoch prophesying about a day of judgment coming over 5,000 years later? Why in his day, when they've got a worldwide flood coming, is he prophesying about judgment 5,000 years in the future? I'll tell you exactly why he was doing that. And this is, this is my opinion. I, I cannot prove this from the Scripture. But based on... All the prophecies that we see after the flood, 
one of the things that they would often do when there was going to be a, a, a local catastrophe, a local judgment or a national judgment. In the case of the flood, it was a global judgment. What they would often do is they would do prophecies that for sure were, you know, uh, had elements that involved the final day of judgment. Okay. The big day of the Lord. But it was also making an application for that day. So what I, what, the way I think you could, you could compare it. Okay. We're all familiar with the term Armageddon. And we do. We associate that with the battle of the great day of God Almighty that we see in Revelation 19. But let's just say I'm like a general and I have an army. And I come rolling into Rock Falls and I just declare to all the people, you all are in big trouble. Armageddon is upon you. You know what? If I, if I told, if I, if I had an army with me and I said Armageddon is upon you in Rock Falls, am I claiming that we're about to fulfill Revelation 19 in Rock Falls? No, you know what I'm just basically saying? Judgment day is here. Destruction is coming. We associate terms like Armageddon with destruction, with judgment. Uh, a big one that's going to come one of these days. You know, they'll say, I'm going to, you know, something like, I'm going to unleash hell on earth. Judgment day is here. We hear it today. People will make those kind of statements whenever big things are coming. And everyone knows when they're saying these things, it's not speaking of the literal, biblical, end of the world events, but it's just kind of making a comparison. And I think that's what they were doing then. They've always known there was a day of the Lord coming where he's going to judge the entire earth. But in these prophecies, they are very clear that they are dealing with lo, you know, a, it's a local judgment that's coming. And so I, th- I believe when they're using that term day of the Lord, I'm not saying it wasn't the day of the Lord, but it was the day of the Lord for that city, for that people. And whenever they would make those prophecies, there are things contained in there about the judgment that's coming on them that you could say do reflect the things that are going to come in the future. You know, and, be, and so these things were a reminder. So people aren't wrong if they go to Zephaniah and they use it to teach some things about the day of the Lord that's still coming. But people also are not wrong if they say the day of the Lord was something that happened in that day. Because that, that's what Zephaniah was prophesying about. When, but where both are wrong is when they make these passages exclusively about the past or when they make it exclusively about the future. It's both. That's how prophecies work. And it was like God, whenever He would bring these big judgments, the Bible tells us in Second Peter, it tells us in Jude, these judgments that came were examples to everyone else. It was like God would bring these local judgments on places as a reminder to the world, one of these days I'm going to judge the world, just like I judged Sodom, just like I judged Jerusalem. And, and we as citizens of the world, we're supposed to look at those things and say, you know what? God is serious about these things. The day of the Lord is going to come one of these days. You know, we better make sure we get ourselves saved and secured and, you know, in, in the family of God. That we're not just citizens of America because this country is in big trouble, but that we're citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. That we, we better have some faith. Otherwise, we are in big trouble. So I believe that's what's going on. I believe that, you know, he, that he, they would use language like this, apocalyptic language, end times language, end of the world language, as a way to just kind of illustrate the wickedness and the judgment that was coming. It was supposed to sound scary. And it's a good thing it did too, because it got guys like Josiah to get right. 
So I believe that's what's going on. And so when there were major times of judgment coming on the people, the prophets would make prophecies that were for that generation's coming judgment, but they would call it the day of the Lord. God was doing two things. He was sending a message for those people while reminding everyone once again, the big day is coming. The big day is coming. And God did this in all the major prophecies where there was a main day of the Lord. But in reality, there have been, I believe, several days of the Lord or foreshadowings of the day of the Lord. Reminders of the day of the Lord. And so, Second uh, Peter 2, four says, For if God spare not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spare not the old world, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Judgment on the ungodly. Now, I dare you to try to tell me that Noah wasn't preaching the same thing as Enoch when it says in Enoch the seventh from Adam in Jude 1.14 prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against. Enoch preached righteousness. He preached against ungodliness. And he spoke of a coming day of the Lord where he's going to come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. So, But I have no doubt in my mind that when Enoch was prophesying of that day coming five thousand years from now, he was also prophesying of something that was going to be in their future shortly that came in the days of Noah. I have no doubt because that's how it always worked with the prophets. In uh, Genesis 9:12 or 11, it says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So notice the rainbow is not a token that God will never destroy the world again. It's that he'll never destroy it again with water. And he had to specify that because God is going to destroy the world again. And I think they knew that. They did know that. How, how do we know they knew that? Because Enoch prophesied of that very thing. And so, and, and without a doubt, the day Enoch prophesied was the day of the Lord. Whether he called it that or not, I don't know. The Bible doesn't record that for us. But God specified to Noah he would destroy the earth with a flood, but he would one day with fire. And so when we see references to the day of the Lord... We are under no obligation to make everything we read about it in the future, nor are we required to just prove how it all happened in the past. There is no rule, too, that it says it has to all go down at once. That's how prophecies work. And so Zephaniah 1.8 says, And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such that are clothed with strange apparel. In the same day, also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there should be a noise of a cry from the fish gate, and then howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. 
And, you know, and people will say, too, you know, whenever it's talking about that day, go to the future. Okay? Future's this way, past is that way, right? So it's like, go to the future, and that day, and that day. But wait a minute. He very specifically talked about some things, too, that were going to happen at the fish gate. What is that? Uh, the fish gate is something that was there in Jerusalem during that time. They got destroyed when the Babylonians came through. Now, they have some new walls around Jerusalem today in the old city section. And they try to call it things like the Eastern Gate and the Beautiful Gate. and all. They've tried to make it like those were the gates and they've renamed those things after the names of the gates of old. But everyone will agree. No one denies that those walls were all built hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of Christ. All the walls you see were built after the time of Christ. And even the Wailing Wall, even the Wailing Wall, that was probably during the days of Herod, during the Roman Empire. It was probably those that was probably there during the time of Christ. They have some sections that they say were there during the time of Solomon. But but either way, the walls were destroyed. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Fishgate gone. And so they, if they built a new one, and they called it the Fishgate, God is under no obligation to fulfill Zephaniah, and He already did that. Okay? So. Right there, it shows something very specific and showing, too, it was about something in that day. So we, 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 don't want to, uh, we don't want to deny these things. We don't need to do that. There is no fish gate today. And so there's something very specific, you know, that's, that's very specific. So verse 11 says, How ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles, and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but none inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink of the wine thereof. And so what does that mean to be settled on their lees? This is a, a, this is a term we're probably not super familiar with in our culture. Uh, this is mentioned too in Jeremiah during the same time. It says Moab, in a prophecy about Moab, it says Moab hath been at ease from his youth and he hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remaineth in him and his scent is not changed. And so this is, a, it's an old biblical, it's an idiom. But again, it's, it's still used. It, it refers to the lees or dregs or sediments of wine or other liquids that would settle at the bottom of a containing vessel. Have you ever had things like that that, you know, after it's set for a while, you'll have a bunch of junk at the bottom? Okay, now, how does that happen? If it just sits there and doesn't move, then everything kind of gets settled at the bottom. And so when it's saying they haven't been uh, emptied from vessel to vessel, but if there's movement, if they're being emptied from vessel to vessel, it stays mixed up. It stays stirred up. And so, because nothing had been happening at Moab, everything got settled on their lees, and they were saying, we're fine, nothing's going to happen. The same thing was going on in Jerusalem. He specifically mentions those who were saying, the Lord's not going to do good or evil. Nothing's going to happen. Why were they saying that? They were settled on their lees. America is settled on its lees. Because we've not been getting shaken up like we need to. Everything's just kind of getting settled. And you know what people are saying? Nothing's going to happen. 
You know what they're saying? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. They've not been shaken up. We got shook up a little bit in 2020. You know, and I think it helped some people. It got them, it, 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 it shook them up like they needed to. But let me tell you, we need a better shake up in our country. I would prefer we just repent and not have to get shook up. But we probably do need to be shook up a little bit. But that's what that's referring to. And it was saying that because in Zephaniah's day, judgment was coming. They deserved it. They were surrounded by it. But the people are just going to act like everything's fine. And don't you, aren't there a lot of people like that? They get mad when you start talking about the financial situation in this country. You know, you have those of us who are always talking about the doom and gloom, like, you know, we're, we're that close to everything crashing. And then you have others out there that are just like, you know, I, I don't want to hear about it. Nothing's going to happen. You know, they, they don't want to be woke up. They're asleep and they're enjoying their sleep. You know, and... You know, and obviously we can take some of this stuff too far and, you know, we'll always act like Armageddon's right around the corner and it's going to happen next week and, you know, sell everything you have, move to the mountains. You know, you know we, we don't want to be that way. But, you know, during this time, they definitely needed to do something because judgment was coming. And so, uh, but I, I think that settled on their lees, um, you know, it, it describes our country. And sometimes it's a reference to just like a false assurance. They just had, they had a false assurance. And so... Understand, even though this book is about judgment coming in that day, people are not wrong to take this next passage and make a future application. And, and, I, and something that I, I, I need to emphasize a lot, and I intend to emphasize a lot when I'm preaching. I had somebody mention this to me this week, challenged me on it, and I thought it was a good way to put it. But, you know, there is, it's very important we're studying our Bible that we understand the interpretation first. What is the Bible saying? What was the Lord trying to teach in this passage? Once we know that, once we have that down, then we will know how to make a proper application. Most people, they only know application of scriptures and they don't know interpretation. And because they don't know interpretation, often their application doesn't really make sense. Hey, you're trying to get people to do a good thing, but I wouldn't use that verse... To, to prove that, we've got to make proper interpretation so we can get our application right. To take these next verses in Zephaniah and to make application to things of the day of the Lord, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to take the parable of the prodigal son and to make an application for a child who's wayward and, and for a, a Christian who's backslidden. It's not wrong to make an application there. And preachers do that all the time. But you know, very few preachers have ever preached a proper interpretation of that parable. And they're missing a lot by not doing that. And their application is often confusing because people are like, some people make it about salvation too. And it's just like, you know, but wait a minute. So did he, did he lose his salvation? Or was he just never saved? But wait a minute, he was a son. He was always a son. He was a son when he left. He was a son when he came back. You know, and so people, they get their, you know, their, their, uh, soteriology gets all mixed up because they've only ever heard applications of that parable. They need to figure out the interpretation of the parable and then the application. You'll know exactly what to do. You would know, you'll know exactly what to do when it comes to all that stuff. So you got to remember that with these next verses. So let's read the rest of this chapter. It says, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly, greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That kind of sounds like Revelation 6. When it talks about the mighty men 
crying out, hide us from the face of him. Is it wrong to make an application towards the day of the Lord that's coming? It sure does sound a lot like it. But has he changed subjects and now he's not speaking of that day anymore and he's only speaking of the future? He's doing both. It says, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Boy, remember how the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord come? Kind of of sounds like the day of the Lord we're looking for. And then, a day of the trumpet and an alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. And he's talking about Jerusalem. But, folks, can we not make an application to this passage to what's going to come, what we see in Revelation 6? when It it specifically mentions to the rich men. And here he's saying their silver and their gold isn't going to be able to deliver them during that time. Without a doubt... God is sending a message as He's pronouncing this judgment on Jerusalem. He's reminding them about that day of judgment that was prophesied all the way back on Enoch that you know what? That's still coming in all the world. Hey world, be warned by what I'm doing to Jerusalem because just like their wickedness is going to be dealt with, their idolatry is going to be dealt with, one of these days, I'm I'm coming to this earth and I'm dealing with the whole world. And you know what? We're supposed to watch when God judges nations and when God judges cities. That's why God recorded the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a message to all the world. This is what God thinks of this kind of sin. God is going to punish this kind of sin. We're supposed to look at the story of Noah. We're supposed to look at all those stories of judgment and it's a reminder that God is serious about sin and we better not ignore these things. So what the prophets would often do in major when major catastrophe was coming, was, again, very similar to one might do before a dramatic event. Even in sports, you might, you might hear somebody do something like that. You know, they'll be having a pep rally or something, and they'll get up and they'll just, or even a fighter, you know, before he gets up and he, and he fights, and, you know, they might have him say a word, and, you know, and they'll, or like wrestlers too, you know, they'll, they'll give these big speeches about how, you know, the, the, this is going to be the apocalypse. You know, Armageddon has come on you. You know, wrath and fury. You know, they're using these apocalyptic terms as just kind of a, it, it, they're comparisons. Nobody is literally claiming these things are coming on all the earth. They're just trying to compare it what's coming on you in that day. And I believe that's what the prophets did. They knew about that coming day. And so he's pronouncing this judgment locally. And God also, knowing he is going to preserve this message for all generations and that we were going to need it someday, we should look at that and and be like, wow, look what God put in here. As God is pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, as he nails their sins, we should look and say, wow, we've got this kind of stuff going on in our country, in our world. And then, and there's a day of the Lord coming on the world. This is, this is a little reminder for all of us in here. So that, that's how prophecies work. And 
you know, one more illustration too. It would be like, you know, as parents, okay? In, in our Christian homes, this might be a way we do it, where we tell our kids, hey, if you don't straighten up, great tribulation is coming on you kids. <laughs> Are we telling them literally the great tribulation is about to start because of their sassy mouth? No. But great tribulation is coming on them. We use these things figuratively. And, I, and so I, I believe all the days of the Lord of the past... And I do believe there were days of the Lord. I believe they were all figurative days of the Lord that were local, that were a reminder about the big one that's coming one of these days. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for this uh, book of the Bible and the lessons that we can learn from it. And if we get anything from it, Lord, just let it be a reminder uh, that judgment is coming on our nation. I pray You'll help us to just get as many people saved as we can before it does. I pray that You'll spare that judgment until the day of Your wrath. Uh, But if not, Lord, you're so good. And so help us to uh, just do what we can to be a light in the meantime.